0: Welcome, 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 everyone, to yet another episode of the Don't Be Broke, Be Woke podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Solomon. Uh, Before we get started, if you guys are newcomers, welcome to the podcast. Make sure you go ahead and and subscribe, download, share, and leave us a review. If you're a returning fan, thank you for coming back. As always, make sure that you're leaving us a review. Let us know how we're doing. Comments. You can go to the Instagram page, Don't Be Broke, Be Woke. Let me know if you want to hear any type of content, specific content or anything like that for the podcast. But without further ado, today, I have another exciting guest for us. His name is uh, Billy Guan, Money Magic Man. I'll let him explain that in a minute. But Billy and I are connected on our Instagram pages and he does his, his own specific thing on Instagram. And as I mentioned before, the, the finance community is pretty big on Instagram and everybody has kind of their way of approaching how we Discuss finance literacy or financial literacy with our audiences. Billy has a very specific way to do that. And so I wanted to get Billy on so we can talk about some of those thoughts that he has and what he thinks of it all. So, Billy, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Not a problem at all, man. So, you know, before I get into all the other extra stuff, the money magic piece, like tell us how'd you get into that? Like, what's behind the name? seen a couple of your magic tricks on, on IG. I had to watch a couple of videos a couple of times to see where you were hiding things, but I couldn't figure it out. So tell us how you got into that magic thing. So when I was in high school, I was a very, very
1: shy kid. And one of the things I wanted to get into was entertainment. So for a little bit, I did a, uh, like a hip hop writing class and we had a whole like steamy release party and everything. But then that wasn't really where I could fully express myself. And so I went to Las Vegas with my family one time and I saw a magic show and I was like, this is it. I want to see people, what their reactions are. And so when I saw that magic show, I was like, this is something that I want to do because I want to make sure or I want to make people smile, make people laugh and entertain them. So essentially, I want to be a cloud. But that's it. (laughs) So I did magic in high school, and I studied magic when I was, I think, 16 or 17,
0: and it's been a lifelong hobby ever since. Wow, such an early age. It's an interesting story in a sense that you saw something that captivated you at an early age and then it just stuck on you like. It's very rare for that to happen, but when it does happen, it kind of stays on you for a very, very long time and you still enjoy it the same like now than when you did when you were that age, right? I do enjoy it. Uh, not to the same
1: like level of intensity, of course, because you know, life gets in the way. Right. Magic takes a lot of time and it's really one of those things where if you want to get good, you have to knuckle down and you know, put the time towards it. A lot of practice, a lot of time on your own to try to get the tricks down stuff like that. And nowadays, I really don't have that much time anymore, but I still really, really enjoy seeing good magic. And so really the magic that I do nowadays is just things with money, things with like everyday objects. I really hate card tricks, though. So. <laughs> Why not the card tricks? Too cliche? Pretty much. Everyone does it on Instagram. So I prefer doing things that are you know more in the realm of like,
0: can this really happen type of thing. Yeah, like the uh, coffee thing that you did last week. <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out where the coffee went, but you mentioned it went into your retirement account, so that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so while, while we're on that, um, the money aspect, so tell us a little bit about like how, you know, the magic piece obviously was when you were 16, 17-ish, but when did the financial literacy education piece Was something that interests you to the point where you felt the need that you wanted to kind of help others?
1: And so I didn't learn about finances until I was 24. Uh, I'm 30 years old, turning 31 now. And so what ended up happening was when I was in college, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I did know what I didn't want to do. And it was going to, um, you know, corporate world. I've always been kind of self-employed, being an entertainer. You know, I did shows, I did gigs, things like that. And I wanted to control where my money goes or how my money is made and where it goes. And in college, during that time, it was tough to be an entertainer because everybody wanted free shows and stuff. So I ended up, you know, getting a side hustle, going into sales. I did a marketing company where I sold like self phone plans and things like that, telecom. And through that experience, I met a very, very successful gentleman who ended up becoming my mentor. And one day he hit me up and he was like, hey, do you know anything about finances? And I was like, absolutely not. And so he sat me down and kind of showed me the information that I usually present to my clients. And I was blown away by it. And I was like, why isn't more people doing this? And what he said to me was very, very profound. And he said, "It's people just don't know about it. And it kind of makes me think about the the state of how we are as people, as financial literacy goes. Most people don't know anything about their money. And if you think about things in a more familial term, our parents really didn't teach us much about money and neither did school. And so for our parents, a lot of my friends are... Asian American, usually in San Francisco, it's a very, very diverse community. A lot of our parents are immigrants, and with immigrant family, you don't know what you don't know, and you can't teach what you don't know. Most immigrants' family come here with uh, the survival mentality, so they only have you know one thing in mind, which is to make enough money to survive or have their kids do better than them. And so when my mentor told me that people just don't know. I was like, there's a lot of opportunity. here," And so I ended up getting a licensed studied for the exams and the state exams. And now
0: we're seven years deep. Wow. What type of like license did you study for this type of stuff? I got the life only license. I'm sorry, you said the what type? The life insurance license. Oh, life insurance. Got it. Got it. Got it. so does a life insurance license teach you about other parts besides life insurance, or does it like just focus on that type of vertical? It system? encompasses a lot of things. We can do things
1: with like investment strategies, annuities, mortgage protection, like tax-free retirement, pretty much everything that a person that deals in stock can do, we can do as well. Obviously, we can't tell people, you know, what stocks to pick or anything like that. That kind of is beyond right. the scope of my license, but it allows for
0: me to, to do a lot of things. So you're not really an advisor. Like when you get a life insurance license, you're not really a financial advisor in the sense that you're not going to tell people like exactly what to do with their money from an investment perspective, right? Yeah, so I'm not an
1: advisor, which means uh, I don't tell people about stocks. That's why I don't talk about stocks on my page. In fact, I don't really care too much about stocks. Typically, i would say, play with the amount that you can afford to lose. Same with Bitcoin and things like that. And so I would be considered a financial consultant. There's a lot of little terminology red tape when it comes to the industry
0: or the financial industry. Right. I always am amazed with the level of detail that people go into specific stuff because I think it's it's very, I don't want to say dangerous. I think we should be very prudent when it comes to how we tell people what to do, try to keep it as generalized as possible because even if I would have my license as a financial advisor, I think... It's very hard to tell people like, this is exactly what you should do. Cause I mean, people should do their own stuff and do their own research to figure out how they should do their money. We should be able to provide them with enough information to help them make that decision. So yeah, I, I know I just went on a tangent, but I, I know a lot of people will tell people, this is what you should buy. This is what you should do. This is how much you should do. And I think that's a little short-sighted.
1: Absolutely. And that's where it gets really, really dangerous because that's when it's considered financial advice. Even if you say it's not financial advice, And that's why I pride myself on being a licensed professional because I'm held to a higher standard. If someone's life gets ruined because, you know, someone else says you should buy this stock, that person can't be held liable because, you know, they're not licensed and there's no accountability there. And so if I did that to someone, I can get sued. I can, you know, lose my license, you know, whatever the case may be. So I have to be very, very careful with how I kind of frame things in order to make sure that the client is in the the best position possible. I have a fiduciary duty to anyone that works together with me.
0: Right. That makes sense. So, so with that, is there a specific field? So let's say, you know, you have a client and, you know, they come to you and they say, Hey, Billy, you know, I need help with my finances, so to speak. Is there a process that you go to, to help them there? Or do you basically say, look, I can help you with this, but I can't help you with that. So how did that typically work for anyone that basically says, hey, really, I I have money and I want to be able to do this, or I want to be better with money. Like, how would you approach those two situations? Good question. And so
1: everything I do boils down to education first. And so I need to make sure that both me and the client are on the same page. And once they are educated on how certain things work with regards to things like 401ks and retirement vehicles and you know, wealth transfer vehicles and things of that nature, that's when I go deeper into their personal finances. So it goes from general education into more personal you know accounts and stuff like that see how much they have, where, how much debt they have. And then from that, that's how I am able to formulate a plan that makes sure that the person can maintain and stay on track. Because a person's financial life is always up and down. Life has a way of throwing curveballs. Yep. My goal is to make sure that variance is less. I'm not going to say, you know, it's going to be a perfectly straight line, but my goal is to kind of be like the, uh, you know, when you go to a bowling lane and you throw a gutter ball, there's a the little, um, what's it called, the bumpers on the side. Yeah, the rails. Goal, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the rails. I just bump that person back towards the middle and
0: make sure they try to stay as close to the middle as possible. It's such a good analogy because today I posted something about budgeting and, and being restrictive and someone commented, Genevieve, she basically said that she looks at a budget as exactly, it's a way to basically keep you in that lane. Yes, you may kind of go off base a little bit, but it's okay. But at least you're not just going off the rails completely. It's just to kind of keep you in that path. And mm-hmm. so to your point, the same thing, you're you're trying to create like these bumpers to help them. So that way, if and when, because it's really more of a when, it's not really if, when things get hard, the impact is not as bad because you have some protection. You have a buffer, so to speak, like to protect that person. So that way you can reduce their quote unquote losses if, if that's the best way to put it. Absolutely. And that's not even going into the
1: investment side of things. It's, my whole thing is I think that budgeting typically is, is a naughty word. Because most people fall off budget anyways. And when it comes to falling off budget, what ends up happening is that the person feels like a failure. And when you feel like a failure towards your money, it creates this negative psychological load. And when that load gets big enough, that person's just going to say, screw it. I'm going to go have a burger, drink a beer. I don't want to deal with this. And that just triggers this whole runaway train scenario where the person just ends up making more and more bad financial decisions. So my whole thing is I'd rather create financial awareness more so than to have a person
0: stay on a very strict budget. Yeah. I look at that exactly like a diet because like, you know, people go in these crazy diet, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and do this and I'm going to focus on this. And then they go so hard initially because that's what they're trying to do. And, you know, it's like working out. Like if you go so hard at the beginning and then you, you kind of like get really bored. It's so restrictive. And then after that, you're like, you know what? This is just, I'm never going to do it. And then to your point, I'm going to go eat like a two burger or with double meat or get like a whole pizza because you're just like, instead of being educational and just come, going in, understanding what you should be doing, it becomes so restrictive. And to your point, the moment it, something bad happens, you feel like a failure and you give up. And then you go out and basically say, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and buy that $200 pair of shoes. So I think to your point, it's trying to find a way to educate people so that they understand how this benefits them, quote unquote, and Mm -hmm. not restricting them. So you can still buy something. It's not like you shouldn't get your coffee. You know, the whole coffee thing is funny because there's two train of thoughts. It's like, why are you spending $5 a day and so forth. But there's another train of thought that says, if you're budgeting and you make adjustments elsewhere, but buying a $3.5 coffee every day makes you happy, it's better to do that than thinking, oh my God, my life is crazy. I can even buy coffee that then derails you. Is that the same thought process for you? Or do you think when you're in a budget, you shouldn't basically be buying stuff like $5 coffees? So my whole thing with that post
1: was I see a lot of people that buy coffee every single day and every day means that it's pretty much a habit, right? And if you're spending $5 on a cup of coffee every single day, that's like 300 bucks to 400 bucks depending on where you get your coffee per month. And so it's okay to buy your coffee, but if you do it every day, just know that you're burning three to 400 bucks. And so I had a client where younger girl, make decent money but they were spending about like 600 bucks on coffee and boba a month. And so I showed her a way where she can reallocate let's say 400 bucks of that into an investment strategy where she can still has some money left over to, you know, enjoy her boba, enjoy her coffees and whatnot throughout the month. But for her, by the time she ended up in retirement in that projection, she would have a hair over a million dollars tax free. So it's not so much about the coffee, how much it costs or whatever. It's how much that coffee is
0: costing you in the back end Mm -hmm. if you don't use your money properly. Right. So I guess in your case, it's not like don't drink coffee every day. Don't buy coffee every day. But this is what can happen if you make some adjustments to how you're buying your coffee or how much you're basically spending on coffee. So you can still do it. But why don't you make this tweak that you can still get your coffee and at the same, well, probably not at the same rate, but then look at how much you actually can get in retirement by just making this small adjustment. 100%. I never tell people to
1: eliminate anything out of their their budget or their diet or whatever the, the case is. If we look at someone's financial history, their financial behavior, and I see that, you know, let's say a person makes five grand a month and they spend about three grand eating out. Well, that's a problem we'll say hey let's dial this back to maybe 750 bucks a month so that you can still enjoy your life but let's reallocate some of this money elsewhere so that it's money that's you know already coming in that you're just spending and use this in a way where we're either building up your investment building up your emergency funds or building up your
0: savings for something and just make wiser financial decisions yeah we're not trying to have you completely stop what you're doing we're really trying to help you Be better at how you're spending your money. It's it's a very interesting concept. People think that we're really trying to stop them from doing what they're doing so they can live this minimalist lifestyle. And it's really not that. It's more like, bro, you know, you're spending $500 a month, $600 a month on coffee seems extreme, but I'm not a coffee drinker. I can't relate, but I could relate on other things, right? Everybody has their own stuff. So for me, it's always about making small adjustments to your point. And shoot, if you go from five hundred bucks to two hundred bucks a month, which is still extreme, but three hundred dollars savings is massive long term. So wow. Um, so you had mentioned the retirement piece, 401k or retirement vehicles. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that because last night you had a webinar. And I think you said you do those every Friday. I do them every so
1: often. It just so happened to be the Friday that I set that one up. But
0: every now and then I'll teach one. As educated as I am, I always tell people that I'm constantly learning. So it's always a learning cycle for me. Like I don't even try to say that I know everything. It's always a learning. And so last night during your webinar, one thing that caught my attention because I had never heard it before, well, at least not the way you had mentioned it, which is in regards to a four-way contribution. And so the example was, Let's just say that your company matches you 5%. You should put in up to the five and that's it, right? Thought process? Yep. And anything extra that you would want to contribute, find some other investment vehicle to put that in. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. And so, can you explain to me the why there? Like, why not do the five? And if I want to put another five in there for me to be quote unquote a total of 15%. I know 15 may not be it depending on how much the percentage of matches, but why not add over that extra five percent? Good question. And so for
1: most people, you know, that match is free money, right? And if you're able to get a like a Roth 401k, that's even better. But your portion is gonna be tax-free, the company contribution is gonna be taxed. But the reason why you want to just go up to that match is because. You want to capitalize on that free money. There's no better money than free money. However, if you overfund it, you're going to have to pay fees on the entire account. That means you're paying more fees on your portion. And if the markets were to crash, you lose. you pretty much have more skin in the game than the company gives to you. And so you will end up losing a lot more than you know, what your company contribution is if you overfund it. And so my whole thing is I want to make sure that the person has retirement by the time they reach a certain age. And so if you remember back in 2008, people that solely funded a 401k, you know, people that worked there for, you know, their jobs or whatever for you know, 20, 30 years or so in one year, their 401k pretty much lost about 40% of their entire value value. Yeah. Now, if you are 65 years old, And you're retiring, or you are retired, and you pull money out during that time when the market crashes, you experience what's called the sequence of returns risk. Essentially, what that means is you're kicking the dog while it's down, and that's going to send it into a death spiral where it can't outgrow, it can't earn enough interest to outpace the loss. Because every time you lose money in the stock market, it requires a much greater return for you to just break even. And so that's why you want to make sure you diversify out your portfolio to have something that's protected from the market. You know, something like either, depending on whatever you'd like to do, I like using indexing strategies because it guarantees me that I don't ever lose money in the stock market. And so I reallocate anything above, I would reallocate anything above and beyond the
0: 401k match into an indexing strategy. So before I get into the indexing strategy, I guess the example, at least the the situation would be if you're like 65 or whatever, you're ready to retire. If you lose 40 some percent of your portfolio value and you decide to retire and you're pulling the money, that money is going to take even longer to grow because now you're pulling money out. So there's less money to compound. So in essence, most of these people have to keep working. Like in other words, they can't retire because- they have to find ways to replenish that money, which will take even longer because if they retire and they pull money out, that money is not going to grow at the rate they need it to. And it's going to be less money for them to retire with over time. Like that's the kind of kicking the door while it's that situation. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. So if let's just say you put up to the 5% and then now you're like, look, I still want to be able to contribute some more. What are some... Other retirement vehicles, you think people should put in taxable account, Roth IRAs. Like, what are some of the other accounts you think people should be able to put their money in if after taxes?
1: My whole thing is tax-free retirement,
0: so you know, obviously there's
1: index strategies that provide tax-free retirement strategies, like the Supplemental Executive Retirement Plans, SERPs. They're also known as rich man's Roths. I really, really like those because there's pretty much no limits to how much you can contribute into there and there's no like income limitation so for like a regular roth account roth ira basically if you make above like $140,000 you can't put money in so for you know higher income earning people that's uh, a limitation there so the SERP plan supplemental executive retirement plans are really really good option there's indexed iras things of that nature and then When you become like an entrepreneur and you have your own business, LLC, S Corp, that type of thing, then you'll have access to things like executive bonus plans. And there's a lot of options out there. Most people just focus solely on like 401ks and then
0: IRAs and brokerage accounts. There's way more out there. Wow. And, you know, as much as I knew about some of the other stuff, there's a lot more I didn't know about, but at least I always looked at them as more complicated Investment vehicles, well, at least let me rephrase that. More for your one of your comment, like rich man type deal, and and some of them maybe whichever, but that's part of like you know the constant learning. You get to see a couple of things all the time, so you think that's all that exists, but there are just way much more out there that people don't talk about, probably because they don't know, <laughs> and so they're not going to speak to it. So I appreciated kind of your presentation yesterday because I was like taking notes, like whoa. I didn't even know like, what the hell that was or that existed before as another way for me to put money to work without it being in one of those, quote-unquote, everyday type of retirement accounts. Absolutely. And these type of accounts, even though it's, it's called, quote-unquote,
1: the rich man's rock, anybody can have it. It can scale down to your individual needs. You don't need, necessarily need to have millions of dollars to, to have these type of accounts. That's, I think, where the misconception is. So people end up thinking that they're barred out of having certain investment opportunities because of their income. Not really a big deal. We can scale it to wherever you are and tailor
0: it to what your needs are. All right. So before I get to the indexing strategies again, I want to get your thoughts on this. So you mentioned before about Asian American immigrants. My parents are also immigrants. And a lot of the people... That listen to podcasts at times are from the Caribbean and other places where they came from and their parents weren't really into money or at least are not aware. They might know about saving, but that's about it, right? Like save money, put it under your mattress, that type of deal. So I want to get your thoughts on like, do you think financial literacy should be something that is mandatory in a sense of like school, like where in school? Or should there be prerequisites in college for people to take. I don't know about your college, but I know I had to do literature. That was never going to help me in what I was going to do in life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's great because I love history, actually, and literature was cool, but I never took any prerequisite classes on how you should be balancing your checkbook at the time. It was really checkbook because I'm 40. And stuff like that. So do you think those things should be, at least not everything like SERP or you know, all those extremes, but at least on a very basic level, do you think that should be something that's a requirement in both secondary school and, and so forth? Well, honestly, really, really do think so. At least, if not a
1: requirement, have the option to learn about it. Cause you know, before any 16, 17 year old goes into college we have to you know, file for loans for college. And if you're going to get a loan that's you know, six figures, you should probably know what a promissory note is, right? <laughs> so it's one of those things where it's like, yes, you should learn about it, but you want to make sure that it's also bearable. Because I know for a fact that if I were to learn this in college, or not in college, in high school, I probably would not pay attention to it because it's just beyond me. So it needs mm-hmm. to be palatable at the same time. And that's where the challenge is. You know, it's hard enough to teach a bunch of high school kids to do certain things. And with a, a topic as, as
0: dry as personal finance, that can be also another challenge. Does that make sense? It does. And I assume the third piece, or at least the other challenge is, do we have the people that can discuss it, right? Because it's like, it's very easy to say it should be thought, but like, can those specific folks like in high school, do they even have, not the mindset but the attributes to even teach financial literacy Um, college, most likely. Yes, potentially. But I know in in high school, it's probably, uh, it's probably a little bit more challenging. Oh, for sure. I mean, take a look at how much uh, teachers get paid. Right.
1: And from a standpoint back in the day, you know, as a kid, you don't really think about your teacher situation. They're probably struggling with money just as the rest of us right now.
0: Right. Right. Which, yeah, that's actually a really good point. This is where I think not definitely I can get to the politics of things because it just takes so much thought process. But I struggled with that notion of in high school piece, because to your point, like who wants to even pay attention to that? Like if you're a 17 year old, you're like, bro, I don't care about retirement. I'm trying to YOLO. Like, you know, (laughs) like it's not really something I really want to hear about right now. You know, I have a 22 year old daughter and, and at first she was like that. have so much time. And and my response was, yes, that's why you want to do now. Like, that's why you want to start now, because you have so much time. Don't wait, because that's what I think most people assume is like, you know what, when I make more money, when I get older, after I have kids, or, you know, right before I get kids, and like, the more you kick the can down the road, the worse it becomes for you to get started. So finding that right, I guess, timeline to introduce it for people is a challenge, but I do think it needs to be in some capacity. At least in college, I think there should be mandatory classes. Yeah, 100%. And to your point,
1: and I think you may have seen it on my page before, but I talk about the four categories of investors. And there's four types of investors. There's investors with a lot of time, but not a lot of money. Typically, these are younger folks, you know, start off early because you don't have the money to contribute a lot right now. Interest will take you the rest of the way there. And as you start making more money, you can contribute more into your retirement and make up the difference there. Second category is people that have a lot of money but no time. These are typically people that are older, more solidified in their careers, but because they've never invested into anything during that entire time, they now have to play catch up. And so, as you know, you know, as you get older, you have to throw a lot more money in to get less of the, uh, the returns. So that's another category. Third category, you know, these are the unicorns, too much money, too much time. Do whatever you want to do, you know, just call it a day, retire early, put some money into some sort of investments and live off the interest, right? And then the last category, this category breaks my heart all the time whenever I uh, come across someone that's in this situation. And uh, it's no money and no time. These are usually senior citizens that never planned out their retirement. And they're either living off of a meager social security check, which is usually around like 1,200 bucks. And the only thing that I can help them do at that time is either you know, help them build up a, a small little emergency fund and potentially maybe, for lack of better words, casket insurance so they can minimize the financial fallout for their family when they do pass away. As most people don't think about when you die, some places have a debt tax but when you die, you leave behind financial ruin for your family. And if we're talking generational wealth, there's a lot more that goes into generational wealth than just buying a whole bunch of properties. If you buy a whole bunch of properties and you leave behind that in an improper way to transfer over the titles and everything, mm-hmm. you're leaving your, your family with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of probate costs, lawyer fees, and all that other nonsense. Step-up
0: taxes, estate taxes, and stuff like that. You know, this last piece... Life is like, I almost look at it like a battery, like you're going to eventually not be here. And so you have to prepare, especially if you have kids and, you know, and all this and you're actually and you have assets, the worst thing, and I mean, the absolute worst thing is to not prepare for when you're no longer around, because it's like a complete Cluster when your affairs are not in order with all that stuff. Like, yes, you can have a basic will, but have you created a will that protects your estate? Like, there's a bunch of different things that I think people just decide not to think about. And I think they're very important to protect your assets. Like, you've built an estate, you have all this stuff, but like, just leaving it behind is not. You're not doing the kids any favor. Now you're just basically making them, to your point, spend a lot of money on stuff like they have to get lawyers because they don't know. Now they have to do more stuff. And then of course you didn't separate things. So now people are fighting within each other. So it can be a disaster if people don't take care of these things while they're still breathing.
1: Absolutely. And you take a look at something like, let's say, you know, Prince, right? Prince passed away without a, a will, a trust or anything like that. Then all of a sudden you got 16 family members out the woodwork, coming out of nowhere, trying to fight for his estate. That's something that I want to help my clients prevent because no one ever wants to kill their family over, you know, like a hundred thousand dollars or something like that. That's just ridiculous. And it's something that needs to be planned out. Otherwise it will happen, especially if you have multiple kids because one kid will feel like this is unfair. This is this, this is that. You just want to make
0: sure you get that at the bud, especially when you're building up your assets and I think what people don't realize is that if you leave assets behind, you have, let's say, you know, a couple of kids, you know, some stuff like that, you don't properly prepare your for for that type of stuff, that money that's being spent is being taken from the estate. So, like, sure, you're leaving them something behind, but if they're fighting for it for years, there might not be anything left afterwards. So obviously. When you're 20, maybe not something you think about as much because you may not have nothing. But as you get older, those are definitely things. And I'm sure, and you tell me, I'm sure as people come to you and so forth, you know, based on their age and their financial situation, one of the things that they have to start looking at is stuff like that, right? Estate planning and other things.
1: 100%. I feel like if you are, you know, 18 or older and you're making your own money, you need to have an estate plan in place. Yeah.
0: I mean, I guess... You could die at any time. So yeah, you're right. Like, Shouldn't wait till you're 70 to start doing that. It should be something once you start making some money, if you have a business or whatever it is, you should basically be planning for if and when stuff happens. So people are probably like, oh my God, such a macabre piece. But this is life. Right, right. To be honest, I don't think most people even really understand. I think that most people are like, well, I have life insurance and that's good. But there's a lot more to that to protect not only... Because life insurance is really more to help your families pay for stuff. But what about your estate? What about your assets that you have? Those are not really protected, you know, if you die and stuff. So what are you doing for that stuff? And Most people just assume it just takes care of itself and it doesn't. It does not. And with regards to life insurance, there's
1: levels to it. Most people are on the level of using life insurance as a way to, you know, death benefit, uh, take care of the, you know, funerals and things like that. How wealthy people use life insurance is they fund a whole bunch of money in there and they use that as a way to become their own bank because then they, they can take out money tax-free in the form of a loan and loans are tax-free. And so I don't know if you know the story, but Walt Disney built Disneyland using proceeds from his uh, life insurance account. I did not actually. Yeah. He went to 50 different banks to try to get a loan for, you know, his, uh, business project of building a amusement amusement park every single bank denied him and so he finally came to thanos and he said screw this i'm gonna do this myself and uh he pulled some money out from his uh, his plans and he used that as a way to fund his uh his empire and so obviously you know that's a very very big gamble but it paid off for him there's a whole bunch of different you know multi-millionaire multi-billion dollar corporations that started off using proceeds from their life insurance plans. I'm assuming those are the whole life insurance is not the term. Uh, I wouldn't say whole life. I would say permanent life insurance plans. Mm-hmm. You can do it with a whole life, but whole life really isn't designed for cash value accumulation. And so you can potentially lapse out your plan doing that. If you are not making your returns, you know? Right. Yeah. That's interesting. There's a
0: lot you can do with life insurance that most people don't think about. And I'm assuming just like everything else, it's not like you need to be like rich to be able to do it. Correct. You need time. That's one really, really big thing that you need. Cause a lot of times
1: these cash value life insurance plans, just it takes time for it to grow, but if you fund it properly, once you hit like 15 years or so, you can access a treasure trove of money and you know, have that be tax free. That's why a lot of, uh, Wealthy people use OPM, other people's money, right? We're using the insurance company's money instead of our own money. And if we can get that tax free, why not,
0: right? Right. I love rich people and people like, uh, you know, I look at it as, I mean, it depends on who, but like most of them who've built stuff from nothing, who then becomes really, really rich and, you know, they're, they're finding ways. I'm like, look, that is what everyone should do. Like, instead of hating, Why don't we do the same? Like, why don't you work on, you don't have to build a company like Amazon, but you can still build well the same way. You don't have to have that kind of money. So like anytime people sit around, oh yeah, these guys are taking advantage. Look, they're taking advantage of what is available to them. Sure, in the cases of Amazon and stuff like that, they have lobbyists that are helping them get away with a lot of stuff. But while these laws and other things are available, vehicles, if you're starting to make money, you could take advantage of them too. You don't have to make a lot of money. But I think to your point at the beginning of this is that people just don't know about a lot of these things. So it's hard for them to take advantage of it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's why financial
0: education is so
1: important. And, you know, with regards to money, right? Money in and of itself is just cool. It's not good or bad or one thing or the other. It's just energy. A person's habits determine whether or not they become successful or not successful. And money just amplifies that. It amplifies the person that you already are. So, if you're a crap person, you're just gonna be a crappier
0: person. You're a saint with money, you're gonna do a lot more good for the world. Which is awesome because I think the mindset, you know, your mindset is kind of what makes you do what you do. You sit there, you think about as you start to make money, you should also give back. That's hoarding your money. Okay, what's the purpose? Like, you should be able to help folks you have a platform to be able to help people, even if you're not the one doing it, if you want to employ people to go out and help people, you're still getting back in some way or another. And to your point, you're going to feel better because you're helping people and people are helping each other. And it becomes this domino effect. We just don't have enough of that, I don't think. I
1: hundred percent. There needs to be a little bit more kindness in the world and not to get too political and everything. It's just, there's a lot of meanness going on just throughout the entire you know, spectrum, whether it's racial violence or you know, political violence against your neighbors and whatnot, it's just a whole bunch of crap going on. And the thing I like about you know, being more oriented towards understanding money is that you start to realize that everybody just wants to take care of their family, essentially boils down to it. And personally, for me, I'm socially more liberal, but I'm financially a little bit more conservative. You know, I don't want to pay over what I need to pay for taxes. I don't know if you know this, but you're not legally obligated to pay more taxes than that is a required of you. Mm-hmm. So if I get screwed over because of all these taxes and stuff, and you know, with California, California has some of the highest taxes out there, I'm going to use as much tax loopholes as I can to kind of lower that liability. So, you know, it's not bad or anything. It's just you want to take care of your family. And if, you know, if you hit a certain income range and you get taxed 50% of your assets, why would you want to work
0: or why would you want to do that? Right. You touched on a point is that financial education and education as a whole are, I think, the two things that I think affect society in negative ways. Because if you're not educated, it's hard for you to, I don't want to say make it, but it creates more obstacles, right? It it just makes it a lot harder for you to get to certain places. If you're not financially educated, you, regardless of if you become successful, you can never get out of it because you don't know how to manage your money, right? So those two things kind of go hand in hand. And because it's lacking, people can turn to very negative behaviors. Either they steal or they rob or they have nothing else to do. So you know, they shoot or they say on an Instagram and they hating on people. And you know, we're talking in the, in the chat, people are blocking other people's or reporting other people's pages because they're hating. It's like, sometimes I tend to want to think that people are good. And for the most part, they are. But like, I'm sad when I see people just... Which is why I don't watch the news. I don't have apps on my phone. I stay away from stuff like that because it, no one wants to report the beautiful stuff that happens every day. Which, if more of that happened, I think we would be a happier society. But we focus on so much of the negativity on all sides that, you know, you tend to eventually it gets to people, people tend to act the same. So 100%. Yeah. I hate that we went that road, but I think a lot of people probably feel the same. Before we close out, I want to get back to one thing and I know it's probably not an easy answer, but I do want you to at least talk about it and if people want to know more, I can send them your way, but like explain the indexing strategy in like the easiest possible way for people to not crash but have enough of a head scratcher to want to know more. If that makes sense. Gotcha, gotcha. So indexing strategy essentially means, and this
1: is to to clarify, right? There's indexing strategies and there's index funds. There are two separate classes. They don't intermingle or anything. They both involve the index, like an S&P 500 or, you know, a Barclays or whatever the case may be, Mm -hmm. but they are two separate asset classes. But with the indexing strategy, what that essentially means is that if the market were to go up, you can capture the growth of the stock market. But if the markets were to ever crash, you have a 0% floor that prevents you from ever
0: losing any money whatsoever. Interesting. Your money is, quote unquote, safe. Correct. Got it's it. uninterrupted compound interest. Wow. So is this something that's like widely used or is it like something that's like hush hush? It is widely used by wealthy people. <laughs> Got it. And I'm not really yeah. surprised there. Do you know why this is not something like? I'm assuming like it's not something you can access like from a brokerage account type situation. No, no so you wouldn't be able to create this on your own. You need to work with a consultant uh,
1: in order to find the best type of uh, indexing strategy that works best with
0: your personal situation. Yeah. So you do need an agent or a consultant to work with you on that. And obviously, I'm assuming just like everything else, you don't need a lot of money to start this? Or is there, is it typically, is there a a kind of an entry point?
1: So for people that are starting off, I'd say start off with a hundred bucks or something to kind of get your your feet wet. And then as you start making more money, then you can have multiple indexing strategies that you're not restricted to just having one. And so my whole thing when I work with clients is that I want to make sure that by the time they reach retirement, They have about six or seven different types of retirement plans, whether it's multiple indexing strategies, Roths, indexed IRAs, indexed Roths, executive bonus plans, whatever the case may be. I just wanted people to make sure that when they get to that point in their life where they can't afford to lose money, they are not just solely relying on one thing like a 401k. Because we saw what happened in 2008, not to get super morbid, but during that year, people lost their homes, people lost their jobs, and people lost their retirements. So a lot of people end up, unfortunately, taking the easy way out, right? Yeah. Uh, And that was just the reality of things. Because what do you do when you lose everything like that? You can't recover. You're old and you have no more opportunities. So that is a very, very dangerous fact of life that can happen again. And so my whole thing is multiple layers of financial protection, multiple layers of financial redundancies so that in case it knocks out one of your income streams
0: you still have five or six more to rely on. Yeah, it's interesting as the more I hear you talk about this and the more I think about it, the younger you are. I mean it's I mean that's a duh, but the older you get, you really want to make sure that your money is as diversified as possible. And as I don't want to say crash proof, but I'm going to go ahead and say it crash proof as possible so that if you lose or when you lose or what you lose is minimal enough so that it's not retirement impacting type of, of, thing. And so to your point, you want to make sure that when you're ready to retire, you have different, different pockets of money and places that you can move, pull money from. And if not all your eggs are in one specific vehicle or even two for that matter and multiple. So that way, you're creating like a really bulletproof around your retirement
1: money. Absolutely. And one more thing to clarify,
0: when people say diversified portfolio,
1: how I see it is, I don't see it as putting it into different stocks. That's not diversity. That's putting your money in the same bucket with different colors. Same asset class, pretty much. Yeah. And so you need to have things like either real estate or life insurance or indexing strategies or businesses, things like that. Those are different asset classes, not just stocks. Anything that's tied to the stock market, it goes up and down. That's pretty much the same thing. Like stocks, mutual funds, 401ks, IRAs, those all work the same. If the market goes up, you make money. If the market goes down, you lose money. And so that's all within one asset class, at least in my mind. So when, when I tell people they need multiple streams of income, it needs to be, you know, either you have some in REITs, have some in whatever else that you want to have some money in. Personally, for me, I, I like to diversify most of my money in tax-free retirement strategies. So Uncle Sam, he wants to take his cut. And typically in the future, because of the increasing tax rates that's going to come, you know, everyone's 401ks, there's like a couple, I think it was a couple trillion dollars in, in people's 401ks cumulatively. That means Uncle Sam can potentially take a third of all of that or
0: more if he decides to raise taxes. All right. It's, it's crazy. You said the diversification asset class, and I'm thinking, yeah, you can diversify your portfolio within different equities, obviously, either in different sectors then you can decide, you know what, I want to be in commodities, and so forth. Like, and then again, to your point, you can have REITs, and you can actually have real estate if you want to get into the insurance things. Bonds, I don't like to tell people good or bad because it's really what your appetite is or your risk tolerance is. But at the end of the day, the more places you can put your money in ways to be protected, to your point, not in retirement vehicles, but in actual assets, in other words... Like that's better instead of just leaving it in equities where equities are, if the stock market crashes, well, it doesn't matter if your money is spread out in the energy sector, healthcare, whatever, most likely it's going to go down. But if you have 30% of your money in equities, and then you have another 40% in real estate, and you have some life insurance and other stuff, then they don't all act the same. So your money is a lot more protected. hundred percent. Yeah. That's a, a concept that I think for beginner investors is very Obviously, it goes over their heads, but I think you know, if you have a thousand dollars, I think it, it's always good to start thinking about diversifying your portfolios to get you in the habit of how can you put your money in different places to work for you, so that way you're not out, you're not susceptible to one thing. So appreciate that. So I'm actually very, very happy you got all built. We got to talk about a lot of good things that even for me, I wasn't really all familiar with. Even though last night, I got a lot of information. And I think that anyone who's listening might have a lot of questions. So why don't you tell us kind of where people can find you either on social media or anywhere else? And I'll make sure, of course, that put that on on the podcast description so that people can actually reach you as well.
1: Sure. So you can reach me on Instagram. It's Billy Guan Money Magic. B I L L Y G U A N Money Magic. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on Instagram. So even if I don't post a lot, I'm still chatting the uh, the DMs and whatnot. So feel free to slide in and get uh, questions. You know, feel free to chat. If you want a consultation, I will charge anything. I do free consultations, and then if you decide to work together with me, I still charge you. I get paid very, very differently than most of these coaches and advisors. So yeah.
0: Great. So what I'll do is once, you know, we get the podcast ready, I'll make sure that Billy's information is on the episode description. So that way, if you guys want to reach out and ask any questions, get to meet with Billy and talk, I recommend it just because I don't think anyone, regardless of your age or whatnot, can stop learning and understanding things because I can guarantee you If I'm learning new things, Billy's learning new things, the guys that you see with 200,000 followers are learning new things. And so for you, it is always great to learn new things as well. And even if you don't do things now, at least you know so you can actually prepare yourself to make these decisions later. So, Billy, I appreciate you coming on, my friend. Obviously, we'll stay connected. I did pull your four wealth concept, the four groups of investors on IG. I'm going to share that because I think it's actually a really cool little description of kind of where people can be so people can look at that and kind of ask themselves, where are they? And maybe it helps a perspective of people to scratch their head and say, where am I? And so that'll be a nice little post to go before we get the podcast on. So thanks for coming on today, man. My pleasure, man. Thank you for having me. So thank you guys for listening to this episode. As always, thanks for the support, the feedback. If you have any question or anything, hit me up on Instagram, don't be broke, be woke, provide some content and um, session one-on-ones on on Instagram. And as always, try to uh, stay woke, don't be broke. Talk to you guys next week.